We've already talked about how we're to fight a good fight, and that, that fight is against our flesh, and we're always dealing with it, and, and that, that that's the battle we've been called to is, to, is victory over sin through the spirit, the spirit of the God. And so we already talked about that, fighting a good fight. Last week we talked about finishing our course and the, the job that God has given us to do and, and seeing it to its end and understanding the stages of life and, and how God uses us throughout those. And today we're going to discuss keeping the faith. We want to find out exactly what Paul is talking about or what he means by this phrase. This is, this is one of those biblical phrases that, that, that you see, along with the other two actually, in this verse for that matter, but one of the phrases that's made its way into popular culture. You see that a lot with the King James Bible. So for example, in the, in the 1980s, Billy Joel sang about keeping the faith. Now his idea of what that phrase meant wasn't exactly the same as Paul's. Um, there have been other songs, there have been movies made with that title. It's become a, a colloquial saying in our culture today. Just an encouragement to keep going, to hang in there, you can do it. And that's all fine and good, but the fact is, when Paul used that phrase, he had a very specific meaning in mind. And like many things we see in the Bible, the definitions used by the world are different than the definitions that God gives us in his word. So if we want to fulfill this responsibility of keeping the faith, we need to know the Bible's definition. We shouldn't rely on Billy Joel or culture to teach us what things mean. I mean, listen, I'm, I'm a fan of Billy Joel. I, I actually like his music. He's just not a good theologian. So that's our goal this morning. We want to try to figure out what this means so that we can then learn how to do it. And as we've done every week of this series, we'll open by reading uh, verses 6 through 8 of 2 Timothy chapter 4. I, I always want you to keep the full context in mind. Uh, that's why we read all three of those verses, and then we'll dive in. Uh, to our study this morning. So follow along with me in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. Paul says, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto them also that love his appearing. So let's go before the Lord, ask him to lead our time uh, direct our study this morning. Lord, we do love you so much. We're so um, thankful to be uh, gathered together today. And, and Lord, we do come, as, as Jeff mentioned, in a, in a time that is, is, is trying, a, uh, a time that um, our country is divided, a time that our country is broken. Um, and Lord, we ask you to use this as a time in our personal lives to just Focus on, on you more and more each day, Lord, so that we can uh, get the good news of your gospel to those who need it. Uh, Lord, I pray that you, you teach us this morning. You use your word to shine a light into the areas of our lives that maybe have uh, somewhat, somewhat of, of darkness in them. Um, and Lord, that you will use it to motivate us uh, just to keep the faith that you've given us to do. Lord, I pray that, that as we look at this, Lord, that everything is said, it's honoring to you, it's glorifying to you, it's a sweet savor. I pray that it's true to your word, and, and I pray that you'll use it in all of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, what we're going to talk about this morning is actually quite simple. I mean, this is the, 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 the simplest message we've, we've been through, but it is no doubt life-changing if you grasp it. 
And again, in order to grasp it, you have to clearly understand it. So we're, we're, we're going to have to clearly define it. And so we're going to do exactly what we did last week. We're going to def define a couple foundational things before we get into the meat of the study. And so first we are going to define the cause. I, I had to switch up the words. You know, you know, I, I couldn't use exactly what we used last week, so I had to switch up the words a little bit on you. We're going to define the cause, but the cause is our faith. And it's important, you say, I, I know what faith is. I, I, I believe that you do. But it is important for us to define it because we're talking about somewhat of a generic term in faith. Now listen, there's, there's nothing more important. Faith is the basis for why we are all here this morning. And yet, it is something that many people don't understand. And it's not understood because it cannot be reasoned. And so this world, the, the people you run into every day, and even us at times, we want to be able to reason out every detail of life. But that's not how faith works. You see, human reason has always been and always will be a rival of God. And so because of that, faith has been attacked and ridiculed for centuries. You know, Mark Twain once remarked, faith is believing and what ain't so? Atheist H.L. Mencken asserted faith is an illogical belief in the occurrence of the improbable. And Karl Marx termed faith in religion the opium of the people. And therefore, many misconceptions exist today about real faith. In fact, if you were to go on dictionary.com, you will see that you know, they list kind of the primary definitions in order. And the second definition you would come to says, faith is a belief that is not based on proof. Which in all actuality is the complete opposite of truth. The biblical definition of real faith is found in the book of Hebrews. You know this, it's Hebrews 11, 11 verse 1. <clears throat> there the scripture states, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So I want to break this down for a second to help us define it. And the word substance here, it means grounded or confidence. And so biblical faith is utmost confidence. It is just like the confidence you have while standing on the ground. Right? When this service is over and you get up to walk to your car, you are not going to be concerned about the ground underneath your feet holding you up. You know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that is true, that that will happen. Now, you know, you may trip over your own feet on the way to your car, but it's not going to be the ground's fault. Okay, now that is like biblical faith. Biblical faith should bring that same type of confidence, listen to me, because it's based on something hoped for. And I know you think, okay, well, that doesn't sound like something we should be very confident in. But here again, that is because the world has stolen the definition of hope. See, biblical hope isn't based in a wish. It is based in a future promise. It is a promised reality that we know to be true, a promise from a God who cannot lie. And we know it to be true because the Bible says so. And we choose to believe, we place our faith in that. We place our faith in the word of God from a God who cannot lie. So Romans 10, 17 tells us, then faith cometh by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. So the first part of faith is substance, which 
entails confidence in a promised future. And the second part of faith is evidence. And evidence entails proof. And just because that proof may not be seen, we still know it's true. Because we don't walk by sight. 2 Corinthians 5-7 tells us that we walk by faith and not sight. So real faith rests in solid proof. Not just feelings, not conjecture, not wishful thinking. And that proof is the Bible. The proof that we have that everything God says is his word. That the faith that we hold is because we believe the word of God. And we believe the Bible. And we know that according to the Bible, God always makes good on his promises. So that is the cause. The cause that we have is a faith. The belief that we've placed in that book. And it means that much to us. We're here because of it. If we didn't believe this book, uh, listen, we're going to get there. And, and I don't have time to go off my notes. But if you don't believe the book, you shouldn't be here. I mean, I'm glad you're here. That's what, that's what faith is based on solely. And then next we need to define the charge. And the charge is to keep. And to keep here in 2 Timothy 4.7 means to guard. We are to keep, we are to guard. We've been given a stewardship, a responsibility to guard what? The faith, our belief in God's word. We have been given a charge to guard it. In 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul told the Corinthians, let, let a man so account of us as of ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be, man be found faithful. It is required in stewards that a man keep it. Keep the faith. And where are those mysteries found? In his word, of course, specifically in the New Testament. And so when Paul is talking about keeping the faith, the specific meaning he, is, he has in mind is he is talking about staying true to the word of God. Because we have no faith without it. And guarding it all the way to the end. And so this is kind of a side note, but I, I want to be very clear here. When, when Paul says, I have kept the faith, he, is, he was not, is not, talking about keeping his own salvation. That is not something that we keep ourselves, that is something God keeps for us. In 2 Timothy 1, verse 12, the Bible says, For the which cause I also suffer these things, Paul speaking here, nevertheless I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And so what he is talking about keeping, what Paul is talking about keeping in 2 Timothy 4, 7, is actually what we find in the next two verses of 1 Timothy chapter 1. So he, he says, it's, it's God. I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. And then verse 13, he says, hold fast the form of sound words, which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus, that good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. See, God keeps our belief in him we are to keep his sound words. And listen, those sound words form one singular word that all believers are to keep. So if you remember back to last week, 
we talked about how our course is specific to each one of us. Paul said, I have finished my course. But when it comes to faith, he says, I have kept the faith. Because there's one. We don't have multiple word of God's. There is and always has been one. And for us today, that word is the authorized King James Bible. That's another sermon. But I do want you to understand this morning that we have been given a specific revelation of God. It's our responsibility to keep it, to guard it, to fight for it. To finish with it. Or as the book of Jude puts it, contend, struggle for it. Verse 3 of, of Jude, one chapter in that book, says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And we've obviously talked about this at, at some level every week of the series, but but this is our closing message because this is the concluding point that brings everything together. Because if you do want to fight a good fight and, and gain victory over sin, fight your flesh, and if you want to finish your course, the, the job that God has given you to do and the different stages of it, if you want to do those things, you have to stay true to and be a guardian of the Word of God. It won't happen without it. I want to show you how to do it. Now, before we get into, into these key points on how to keep the faith, let me, let me say it, it is, it is nearly impossible to boil down our responsibility to the Word of God in a nice, succinct list that we're fully able to cover in the 25 minutes or so that we have left this morning. That's kind of ridiculous. The Bible actually has a lot to say about itself, and it has a lot to say about us in relation to it. So what I'm going to try to do is summarize a number of thoughts that I have into, into three key points. So I don't pretend to think that this list is exhaustive or that it covers every aspect of our responsibilities to the Word of God. But I do think if you keep these three things, that you will keep the faith. If you will understand these, if you'll get them and apply them in your life, you will keep the faith. And they involve how we view the Word of God and then what we do with the Word of God, both internally and externally. So with that said, here we go. Our first key responsibility towards the Word of God is see it preciously. See it preciously. This gets to your view of the Word of God. Is it something that is precious to you? And just to continue the theme of the morning, we need to define the word precious by the Bible, not how it's used in our language today. Because when I say the word precious, you're thinking about your grandmother and, and what she says about your kid's terrible drawing that they gave her. You know, oh, isn't that precious? And it is. But that's not what I'm talking about because that's not how the Bible defines the word. The word precious is, is found 76 times in the Bible, and nearly every time it means something very valuable, costly. It is something that is rare, therefore it is, it is, it is very valuable. You see, the first mention of the word in Genesis chapter 24, verse 53, gives us some insight. 
the story of, of, of Rebecca, the bringing Rebecca back. And, and, and the servant uh, brought forth jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment and gave them to Rebecca. And he gave also to her brother and to her mother precious things, valuable, costly things, like jewels of silver and gold. We also find the word precious in direct connection with the word of God in 1 Samuel chapter 3. It's that famous story of, of when Samuel is being called by God, and he's not even really sure what's going on. He's going back and forth to Eli and saying, eh, are you calling me? And, and, you know, Eli doesn't really know what's going on either. Um, but in the opening verse of that chapter, the Bible says, And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. So it meant it was very valuable because it was rare. And so God calls a man, he calls Samuel to, to provide the vision so he could speak through Samuel to the nation of Israel. And Samuel did that faithfully because he viewed the word preciously. In fact, look at what the Bible says about Samuel and the word of God down in verse 19. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and did let none of his words fall to the ground. And when it says he didn't let any of them fall to the ground, it means he kept them. And he didn't discard them. If God said something, Samuel did something with it. God, of course, doesn't let his words fall to the ground, but we shouldn't either. So Samuel guarded it. It's similar to what we see in, in the, the gospel parable of the sower and the seed. You know, specifically, if you look at that Luke 8 account of that parable, there we have, have a man that, that sows seed in various environments, right? You, you remember the parable. And some of the seed goes by the wayside, is trodden down. Some of it, the, the fowls of the air come and devour it. Some of it is, is, is planted on rocks and it doesn't take root. And then some seed is amongst the thorns and, and it is choked out. But finally, there's some seed that is sown on good ground. And it brings forth fruit. And down in verse 11, you begin to see the definition of that parable, Luke chapter 8. And it says, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. But verse 15 is the key. But that on the good ground are they, which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it. And bring it forth fruit with patience. And bring forth fruit with patience. In this case, the word didn't just fall to the ground. Did let none of the words fall to the ground. It didn't just fall to the ground and get stepped on or choked away. No, it was seeded into a person's heart and they guarded it because it was precious. This needs to be our view of the word of God. And remember, if it's valuable and if our charge is to guard it, it's because it can be taken away. You do have an enemy out there that is trying to steal your Bible from you. In previous weeks, I told you that each of these three responsibilities of, of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 were countered primarily by one of the three enemies. And when it comes to keeping the faith, so we saw you know, the, the, the fight, that it's against their flesh. The course, the enemy is the world because it has its own, has its own course. When it comes to keeping the faith, when it comes to guarding the word of God, your primary enemy is the devil because this is the realm he works in. He attacks the most important stuff. 
And stealing the word of God is the first thing he ever does when he shows up in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. And in that Luke 8 parable that we, we just talked about, we skipped over you know, most of the verses in there. But let me show you one more. It's verse 12. Those by the wayside are they that hear. Then cometh the devil and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. See, the devil is coming. He wants to take the seed of the word of God away from you. Of course he wants to do that to the, to the lost world. But he wants to do it to us too. He wants to take the word that is in our heart. He wants to steal it from us. So guard the word as you guard against the devil as you keep watch. And listen, everything we face, as with everything we face in life, the attack can be very subtle. The, the devil's a roaring lion, but he's also an angel of light. I mean, he knows, how, he knows how to attack you and to get you off track even without you knowing it. Let me let's show you what I mean by that. There's a very interesting verse in, in the 119th Psalm. In verse one, it's verse 101, and it says this. I have refrained my feet from every evil way, that I might keep thy word. Okay, I just want you to think about this verse for a second, because here's what's scary to me. And this gets to the subtlety of our enemy. Do you see what is considered the opposite of keeping his word? It's walking an evil way. So when we don't keep the faith, when we don't guard God's word that we're fed every Sunday, or that we receive from him in our, in our personal time with him, it's an evil way. But we don't think like that. Because Satan doesn't want us to think like that. And he wants us to think that it's no big deal. God doesn't really care if you apply that message. I don't, he doesn't care. It's not that big a deal. You're doing okay. You're a pretty good person. That word isn't that important. Well, I don't know about that. I also see verses like Psalm 18, verse 21 says, For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. See, it's wickedness in God's eyes to not keep his ways. And I don't know if you know this, but his ways are found in his word. So, so let me ask you, how do you view it? How do you view his word? How do you view the preaching of the word of God? How do you view your time with God and what he shows you personally? Do you hide it in your heart or, or do you let it fall to the ground? What does it mean to you? What comes to your mind when you think about the word of God? Because that gets to how you view his word. And your answers to those questions will, will reveal your thoughts in two primary categories. Because what I'm really asking you is, is first, do you view the Word of God as authoritative in your life? Is it your authority? Is the Bible your authority in all things that pertain to life and godliness, all things of faith and practice? Or, or do you hold back and reserve some authority for yourself? Because if you view the Word of God correctly... It will be your authority. But then second, I'm also asking, do you view the word of God as sufficient? 
in your life? And those are two different questions, and, and, and you might not exactly understand that, but let me explain it to you. Because you can believe in the authority of Scripture and not believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. You see, maybe you think it is authoritative in everything it talks about. It just doesn't talk about everything. And certainly not everything we deal with in 21st century America today. Maybe even some of the things that we're dealing with today in our country. And if you think that, you will not keep the faith because the Bible is completely sufficient in all things. And it claims to be so. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Yea, than much fine gold more precious than those jewels of gold and silver. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned. And in keeping of them, there is great reward. Psalm 119, I showed you verse 101 a second ago, but now look at verses 102 and 103. This shows you how David viewed the word. He says, I have not departed from thy judgments, for thou hast taught me. They were authoritative to him. They were his authority. And he says, how sweet are thy words unto my taste. Yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And they were sufficient because they were satisfying. They satisfied his soul. They were sufficient in every area of his life. Listen, you don't survive without food. And spiritually, it's the same with the word of God. And he says, sweeter than honey to my mouth. They provided him the sustenance to survive. And if you want to see the word of God preciously, you have to view it correctly. You have to view it authoritatively and you have to view it sufficiently. One isn't enough. But if, if your view is that, that it's precious, and it's the authority in all areas of your life, then you'll naturally be prepared to fulfill your second responsibility towards the Word of God. And that is to study it personally. So now we move from how you view it to what you do with it from an internal perspective. Because we, we all know when it comes to building a relationship with God, we do that through spending time in his word and prayer, the, the whole communication chain. We're told to read the word of God, but it doesn't end there. From 1 Timothy 4.13 even. So till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. And the last part of that verse, doctrine, involves learning. That word means instruction or teaching. And to learn from the instruction or teaching you receive, you have to study a little bit sometimes. This church knows 2 Timothy 2.15 very well. Study to show thyself approved. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We all know that verse. But what I want you to understand with this point is you need to study it personally. So the study I'm talking about here that is part of keeping the faith is not studying just so that you can be smarter about the Bible. I mean, that, that is fine. That is great, actually. It is a good thing to learn the, all the cool stuff in the Bible, truly. I love it. But what's important 
is the study that is related to your life. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, to study as a workman. And so that ties it back to our course that we looked at last week. It is a job that God has given you to do. Whatever the job is God has given you to do, study for that. So that means your study should be commensurate to your job, to your course. Now again, please, please don't get me wrong. If you want to go above and beyond and study everything in the Bible, man, great, do it. You will never regret that. But that isn't necessarily related to you keeping the faith. So, so let me give you a very practical example. I, I, don't, I don't want you to misunderstand me. You know, last week I talked about seeing the stages of your course. And I said, I, I used the example, and it was off the cuff, but it was an example of a young mom. And I said, you know, take the time, see that stage, and, and, and don't, you know, don't begrudge the stage. Invest the word of God into your kids that, 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 that God has given you. See that stage and what God has for you in it. Okay, so this is how this point applies to that. If you're a young mom, Maybe you should study to see what the Bible says about training up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You see, it's personal, and it applies to your course. And when you see what the Word of God has to say about your situation, and you apply it, that's going to build your faith, which will help you keep the faith. It, it comes through experience, which, you know, w there's a great verse in Romans 5, 3. Again, I don't have time for this, but, um, but I'm going to do it anyway. We're we'll, we'll get, we'll getting there, I promise. I'm bringing it home quickly. Um, that, that talks about this path of patience, experience, hope. And we've talked about that. Romans 5, verses 3 and 4, 4 and 5, right in there. Patience, experience, hope. Patience, experience, hope. And so, you know, the, the we, when, we, when we're dealing with tribulation, you see this. Well, if you go to Romans 15... It provides more clarity to that because you see, the, you see that same progression and it says patience, comfort of the scriptures, hope. The experience you gain is the comfort you get from the scripture as you spend time, as you're dealing with life, you're dealing with the, the, the struggles of life, you're dealing with your course and you're, you're you know, fighting the fight of the flesh and you're just trying to finish it. You know where you gain the experience you need to keep the faith is the comfort that you get from the scriptures. So you have to spend time in it, and you have to study it personally. So that means your study may be different than my study. That's okay. Part of my course is to give you the whole counsel of God. That takes a little time and work. So maybe I study more than you. Who cares? Study enough so that you can finish your course and keep the faith. And the more you study, the more you'll want to study. And that's what this is all about. It's not a competition. It's not about who knows more, who's, who applies more. It's about completing our individual responsibility so that God is pleased. That's it. But it's only going to work if you do it. So do you take the time to see what God's word has to say about you and your course? Because God has every answer you need. But you have to go get them. You know, I love this progression. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Because his compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. It's a great verse. The Lord's mercies are new every morning. They're there every day without fail. Because great is his faithfulness. What that means is you have to go get them every morning. You see, the mercies you get from God today may not apply to tomorrow. He's got something new for you tomorrow. So here's the problem I have. 
My problem is seeing people that sit around and they complain about how hard it is to fight a good fight and how hard it is to finish their course and keep the faith. When God is saying, I had mercies for you today and provided everything you needed to win today, but you didn't come get them. And how do you get those mercies? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me show you. Psalm 85.10 says, mercy and what? Truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. That means when you, when you want mercy, you have to get truth. Because mercy comes through truth. They're met together. And we know from John 17, 17 that his word is truth. So you receive those mercies to get through the day, mercy to finish your course, mercies to keep the faith. And you get them by getting into God's word and meditating on him and his faithfulness. Studying to show yourself approved unto God. And when you do that, it becomes more than just another good book. It becomes the source that you go to for everything. For your comfort, for your guidance, for your strength, for your power. Because it is authoritative. And it is sufficient. No matter what the enemy tells you. And it becomes your lens to the world and to yourself. And the word of God becomes the mirror that you see yourself through and you see the world through. And you get a true picture of everything around you. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 17 and 18 says, Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. And I don't have time to take you through all of this, but what I want you to see is you get to see God's glory through this book. And it becomes the mirror of your life. And if you look at it every day, you'll begin to see yourself change. It's like an, an actual mirror, right? Good, bad, or indifferent. The mirror is going to tell you exactly what's going on with your body. And if you're gaining weight, the mirror is your worst enemy. And if you're losing weight, you've never had a better friend. The Word of God is the same. It's going to show you exactly who you are. It's going to exactly show you exactly what the world is. It's going to give you the lens to view the world and what's going on. Listen, there's more confusion in the world today than maybe ever. The Word of God gives you the lens to allow you to understand exactly how to see it. So go to it. Allow God to teach you through it. And you'll see yourself. And you'll see the world how God wants you to see it. The good, the bad, and the ugly. But if you keep going to it, and you keep studying it personally for you, for your course, for your situation in life, that God will begin to mold you, and you'll begin to look like you've never looked before. And before you know it, you'll, man, you'll be singing along with Billy Joel how you're keeping the faith. When it changes you, you're going to want others to know, and that leads to our last responsibility towards the Word of God, and that is share it persuasively. And this is what you do with the Word of God externally. Internally, you study it, but externally, you've got to share it. And this is one of the great spiritual ironies of the Christian life. Because in order to keep the faith, you have to give it away. We have to share the seed of the Word of God with those around us, and we have to share it persuasively. Listen, we usually try to share it passively. Because we want our life to do the talking, whatever that means. But let me tell you, that is something that carnal laodicea and Christians have made up. Because you do not find that type of evangelism in the Bible. Certainly not with Paul, our model. 
And don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm, of course I'm not saying you shouldn't worry about living the gospel. Yes, please do that. What I'm saying is it's not enough. When you look at Paul's life, he did three things specifically when it came to sharing the word of God. And you find those things in Acts 28, 23. He was addressing the chief men of the Jews in Rome and look at how he did it. And when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him into his lodging to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning till evening. He expounded, he testified, and he persuaded. What a great model that is for us as well, because we must expound, set forth, explain, make clear the gospel. We must tell men what the word of God means in the, in the plainest possible language. We must also testify. We must bear witness to the effect that the gospel has had upon our heart and our life. The telling of your personal experience is a means of grace to your hearers and maybe the most effective gospel message you have. But listen, that wasn't all. Paul was not satisfied simply to expound and to testify. His heart was full of love to those without Christ. Therefore, he persuaded them. He entreated he besought, he implored his hearers to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. He did the same thing two chapters earlier when he stood before King Agrippa. And the king listened to Paul's appeal, his exposition, his testimony, and his persuasion. And then the king responded with what are some of the saddest words in the Bible in Acts 26, 28. And Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Man, almost the Christians altogether lost. But it wasn't from a lack of trying, and we need to try as well, because listen, there is an eternity at stake. It's what all this is about. We're talking about fighting a good fight, and we're talking about finishing a court. This is what it's about, man. It's about doing this. It's about keeping God's word. It's about being bold in your witness. We're in the last days. What better thing you have to do? 2 Corinthians 5.11 says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We're made, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. And this, the terror of the Lord, I think, is a forgotten note in modern preaching and evangelism today. But it is what is to motivate us to share God's word with others. I think we have conveniently forgot that the Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God in Hebrews 10.31. And we substituted a watered-down gospel of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man instead of the stern reality set forth in this book. There is something in God to fear. There is something that the Christless man should very well fear. This is God's ultimate hatred and eternal judgment of iniquity. And so Paul, in the context of the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, said, because of this terror, we persuade men. And I obviously don't know all Paul had in his mind when he wrote those words or all that the Holy Spirit was trying to get across through his inspiration. But I have to think, that as Paul thought about Christians, about us having to answer for our behavior at the judgment seat of Christ, that it brought home to his heart what a solemn thing it will be for unsaved men and women to face their sins at the great white throne. And brothers and sisters, oh, that we would think the same. 
that we would rise out of our carnality, that we would lay aside our comfortableness, and that we would get busy persuasively sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those around us. What are we waiting for? How much time do we have left? So let me ask you, if not you, then who? And if not now, then when? If you want to keep the faith, you have to be willing to give it away. And now let me give you our, our two key takeaways and then we're done. First, keeping the faith should be the primary upward focus in your life. Fighting the fight was the inward focus. Finishing your course was the outward focus. This is upward. This is about how you view God, how you view his word. Do you love it? Is it precious to you? Do you look up by looking in his word? When trouble comes, when you need answers. And then do you share it with others for his glory? That's first. Then second. Keeping the faith means scripture has full authority in your life. And whatever it takes, you're, you're going to guard it. You're not going to let it fall to the ground. And if that is your attitude, then you're ready. If the word of God has the preeminent position in your life, when you meet the Lord, you will be able to say, like Paul, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. And I'll be the first to admit it wasn't always pretty. But I didn't quit. I kept on, man. Let's all endeavor to do just that. The Lord is coming back to get us one day soon. Let's be ready. Fight a good fight. Finish your course and keep the faith. It will be worth it all. You can count on that. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We are so thankful for the, the responsibility you've given us. You've entrusted us with your word. You've counted us faithful for the ministry when we're not faithful. And, and Lord, because of the worthiness of your son, Lord, we, we have the ability to do it. We can, we can keep your faith. We can, we can take your word. We can guard it. We can hide it in our heart. We can keep it there. We can meditate upon it and allow it to guide our lives. Lord, we admit to you now it is authoritative and insufficient for all things. Lord, please help us to focus on it, to look towards it, and Lord, to guard it. To guard it for us personally. And then to keep it by giving it away and sharing it with others. Lord, now's the time. Let's get busy about that work uh, as a church, as individuals. Uh, Lord, that we would, we would be faithful uh, to the gospel mission you've given us. Lord, we love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.